You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry, and well... This isn't exactly breaking news at this point, but we are in the midst of a global pandemic unlike anything we've seen in modern history. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. Businesses are closing, events are being postponed or canceled, companies are mandating working from home in record numbers, and scientists, as well as local and national officials, have cautioned people to practice social distancing by staying home and not going out unless absolutely necessary. This along with washing your hands for at least 20 seconds, will help stop the transmission of the coronavirus. So y'all, please, follow the advice. Stay home, be safe, wash your hands, and look out for one another, all right? So now that we've gotten that out of the way, I'm just going to go ahead and skip our regular ad spots I usually do in the intro, you know. Facebook design, abstract, check them out. There's links in the show notes, all that sort of stuff. I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this week's interview. I'm talking with Caroline Hill, a London-based creative director and the founder of Chill Create. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi there. My name is Caroline Hill. I'm a creative director. I'm a specialist in branding and I have my own brand called Chill Create and I'm a designer. I'm an all-round creative. What was your impetus behind starting Chill Create? So it's something I've always wanted to do from I was a little girl. And I got to a point in my career, I was the director, art director, creative director of a design firm. And that was my goal from when I started out in the um, in my design career. And I got to this goal and I, I was just really bored and I wasn't really feeling the type of clients I was working for anymore. I wanted to do something different. And to be honest, I was even questioning whether I wanted to be a designer anymore. Mm. So um, I went off traveling. I took some time out, explored a bit, went full hippie, went off with a camera and a sketchbook. <laughs> and when I came back, I had I just had some designs, some ideas, which were a lot more just completely different to anything else I've ever done. And it was a print. So I ended up making some fabric and experimenting with a few products, which I got a friend to make for me. And that was the birth of Chill Create, I basically wanted to start a fashion brand. So what is sort of a, an average day like for you these days with Chill Create? Well, at the moment, Chill Create has kind of taken a back burner because although that's there, it's online, it's ticking away, online sales still happen. Last year, I had to focus a lot more on my branding side of things to actually pay the bills as I don't know if you know, but yeah, as a creative, you often have the balance between the work that is your passion and the work that pays the bills. Yeah, absolutely. So Chill Create is my passion and the work that pays the bills is my branding work. So I'm an independent design consultant. I help people build their brands, their communications, you know, that type of thing. Okay. How do you go about sort of choosing the types of clients and projects that you work with? Well, I've been really lucky thus far. I've been an independent creative now for three years, and I haven't actually had to go out looking for work. So Mm. my way of getting work is through networking. I like socializing. I like being out and meeting people. So it's really old school, but I get my business cards out. I chat to people. I tell them what I do, and I get my clients that way. But I have to say, I'm now in the process of actually beginning to think, right, how do I now choose the type of clients going forward? I think trying to find clients which I can believe in what they do is really important to me. And I guess they would also have to mesh with sort of, well, if you're coming to them as a a brand consultant, then they might, I guess they're like at the beginning stages of their business or or does does it really matter? I do have people at the beginning stage of their business, and that tends to be kind of startup entrepreneurs. They are super excited and great and have super amounts of passion, but they don't necessarily have big budgets. Mm -hmm. So the type of clients that I like to try and work with more are people that 
are perhaps already on the road with their own entrepreneur side of their business. They've probably been doing it for some time and now they're trying to take it to the next level. They're trying to step it up. So they've already got their brand. They've already got their philosophies, but they now need time and help to hone in on their key values, strategies, and identities. Yeah. At work, we just wrapped up. We just wrapped up and launched a project last month where we used, it was an independent branding agency, I think kind of similar to what, what you're doing with Chill Create. And it was amazing just kind of seeing how precise they were with asking all these questions and really making sure to get to the root of what the brand was about that we wanted to build. It wasn't just, you know, oh, make us a pretty style guide. It was what are the the values and everything that go into it, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's so important. For me, it makes the design process easy. Because sometimes if you've got a client who just wants you to make them a pretty logo, something that looks nice, I can go off, I can create a pretty logo. Yeah. But then they come back, oh, it's not quite right. It doesn't pop. You know, the classic, it doesn't Mm -hmm. pop. (laughs) (laughs) But if you work with a client and you then start to understand their values, where they're coming from, who they want to attract, then it really hones in on the actual style, the content, the philosophy. And it then becomes really easy to work with the client, develop a relationship where you both have an identity or a project at the end, which everybody's really happy with. When it comes to approaching a new project, what's your process like? I think to start with, it would be to sit down with the client, have a, an open discussion about what it is they hope to achieve. And um, I take them through a kind of um, a brand strategy process that I used to use a lot when um, I was working for these other agencies, is where you, um, you build up a set of values You then build up to the next stage. So it's like a pyramid chart where you build up from the values to the promise all the way up to the brand essence. And then once you've got these things, you've got got essentially without the actual design, you've got the brand. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we go through sort of image research and creative stages of designing feedback and then applications. So it's it's quite a straightforward process. Are there any companies or clients out there that you would love to collaborate with? Oh, goodness. I guess, I think for me, I actually asked, I've started lecturing recently, and I actually asked my students this question just the other day. (laughs) And while I asked them it, I thought myself, who would I like to collaborate with? What would be like the ideal, the most amazing project? I think (laughs) for me, it would be I've worked perhaps this year a bit more on my own personal graphic style. And then I imagine that, I don't know, Nike or <laughs> somebody comes to me and says, let's let's do a collaboration. I'm talking out of this world kind of ideals. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, put it out there in the universe. You never know. You never know, right? <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the hardest part about what you do? I think the hardest part for me is often working solo. I used to be the director, have a whole team. So I would have bosses above me. I had kind of strategy staff on the left. And then I had a a whole team that I managed. And so going from that to basically being the boss, the middle person and the person doing the running around, that has been one of the hardest challenges. And at times I have people to share the work with and other times I don't. I sort of have to expand and contract depending on the job. So that's been quite a major challenge. So let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a bit. I know just from doing my research that you are, you're from London, right? You're London proper. Yes. Born and bred. Born and bred. (laughs) What was it like growing up there? I have very fond and happy memories growing up in London. I grew up in Brixton, which is South London. I guess the equivalent to stateside massive might be like Brooklyn or something like that. Okay. So it's a very Afro-Caribbean neighborhood with a lot of a lot of energy, a lot of vibe about it. And school and everything for me was great. I loved school growing up in London was was fun. When did you know that like art and design were things that you were interested in? Were you like exposed to that a lot in Brixton? Yeah, I was exposed to art a lot from my parents. They were very creative parents themselves. 
they're not creatives themselves, but they just have lots of creative friends and lots of artist friends. My mm -hmm. grandmother was a painter and, you know, we used to go and visit her. She lived in Cheltenham, which is in, which is sort of just past Oxford and she'd have watercolor paintings going on the whole time. And I always wanted to be an artist. I think from a very young age, I was really excited when we'd go to galleries and look at art. I remember being about 10 years old and loving Andy Warhol exhibitions that my parents had taken me to. And of course, lots of my parents' friends were artists. So I grew up, grew up in this very creative community. So I knew from a young age that I wanted to be an artist or a designer mm -hmm. or a fashion designer. Okay. And then, and yeah, I got to school and quite quickly I was kind of told, well, you don't want to be a starving artist, Caroline. <laughs> were, your, were your parents and family kind of supportive of you, though, going that route? Oh, yeah, they were, they were super supportive. I never had any, any problems in terms of convincing my parents that I was going to be an artist because I'd been saying it from I was, like I said, about 10 years old maybe younger even. But at school, you were hearing something different. Yes, quite often at school, you're paired up with careers advisor. And I remember the careers advisor saying, well, mm, I don't know really about you being a designer or an artist. Maybe you should be a social worker, you know, something a bit mm. more achievable. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. When I was in high school, I had my guidance counselor at the time would always tell me that like, you need to learn a trade. And like here in the States, like learning a trade is like blue collar work, like a mechanic or, or fixing air conditioner units or something like that. And now granted I was valedictorian in high school. I graduated at the top of my class, but she's like, well, you know, just, you know, just think about it. You know, you might want to think about, you know, learning a trade or something. Cause you never know one day. I never know one day. What that doesn't one day. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was the same. I was, uh, you know, a top scorer in the school. So there's no reason why we shouldn't have been pushed to do exactly what we wanted to do. Right. <laughs> and you went to the London College of Printing, which I, I said this before we recorded. I was like, it sounds like a college for printing, which <laughs> seems like a, a very intensive thing to study. But what was your time like there? It's changed names now. It's the London College of Communication, because okay. essentially the the printing world is dead or depleted. But yeah, it's, I guess its background, the London College of Printing, was that it was a an arts college, part of the London Institute, which focused on the kind of printing, publishing and, and arts, which then moved into digital. So I actually studied retail design and business management, which was actually an interior design degree. Okay for public and commercial spaces. So it was it was a mixture of sort of design, but also business and branding was very heavy, was a big part of it. So you had to both design the interiors, brand the interiors and understand how you were going to make this commercially viable. Wow. That actually sounds like a really modern program. When, when I think about what a lot of schools try to teach, it's more so just the design and not the business aspect of it. Yes. At the time, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, the business side is so boring. But actually, you know, having left university when we only had access to computers, you know, one day a week, <laughs> I kind of feel like everything I learned in university on the creative side was great. But as soon as I started the job, you know, I was on the computer 24 seven. So all this hand drawing skills that I learned I never actually had to use in my job for, for a number of years. <laughs> but the business side of things was very informative. And I, I still kind of think about what we did learn. And it was very good in that respect. No, that's, that's really good. I mean, we had back on the show, I think it was maybe about, God, I've been doing the show for seven years now. I think it's been about two or three years ago, we had Douglas Davis, who wrote this book about kind of the business of design, like learning, basically, what you learned in college, like learning the aspect of not just branding, but how do you design towards business goals? Like, how do you keep those in mind while also still creating something that looks nice, that serves the client's needs, but is more than just like a pretty thing, you know? Exactly. It's it's the strategy. I think they 
changed the name of the course after I did it and they switched it around a bit. I'm not sure if they still combine the design with the, the strategic side anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I remember there was one book which was really important at the stage. It was called The Design Agenda. It's so old now. But that was like the, the course Bible and it was basically brand strategy and design management. And what did you say it was called? The Design what? The Design Agenda. The Design Agenda. That sounds kind of sinister, but I kind of like it. (laughs) (laughs) The design agenda. No, I I like that a lot. So what were your first like design jobs out of college? You you graduated, you, you now have this not only design skill, but the business skill, you've got the degree to back it up. What were those first design jobs like for you? So my first job I got was designing for Tesco's, which is the UK's one of the UK's biggest supermarkets. Mm-hmm. And I got the job and I was super excited because it took me a while to get my first job. And I said, great, thank you. I've got the job. What? Sorry, what is the job? <laughs> I didn't actually know what the job was I was applying for. And they said graphic designer. And here you've just heard me say I actually graduated from an interior design degree. Mm-hmm. And that's when I said, oh, great. Yeah. They said, you can do that. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was just so happy to have a job. I wasn't about to tell them that I'm not a graphic designer. I'm an interior designer. So I did it. I, I learned straight in at the deep end, designing for one of the UK's largest supermarkets. I had to design buy one, get one free messages, frozen food signage, just really boring till <laughs> messages, anything and everything that you see on the kind of point of sale side within a supermarket yeah that then gradually grew into being put in charge of whole departments graphics art direction for photo shoots of frozen food (laughs) Mm. Um, being in charge of the entire uk's car park signage packages so you know it was a fast-paced agency it was a massive agency it was a sink or swim kind of situation and um yeah i went in front stroke swimming hard well, I think it's it's good to kind of be in those sorts of situations because it pushes you to to become a lot better, I guess, pretty quickly, given, you know, how large Tesco is as a brand. Yeah, you had to you really had to deliver quickly. You know, it was one of those agencies where you would work till sometimes midnight, two in the morning. You still oh, had dear. to be there at 9 a.m. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I learned a lot in that company. And I also learned straight away from my experience there that I didn't want to work at another big agency like that again. So um, after it, that, I went to smaller agencies. It's amazing. I feel like the agency experience is universal. Like no matter who I talk to in any country about working for an ad agency or something like that, it's the same type of breakneck speed or the same type of huge just workload. That's wow. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think you can handle it for a while. And some people love that yeah. that kind of vibe consistently. Yeah. Yes. I think when you're young, it's good because you, you've you got the, the energy to do that. Yeah. You've got the fire to keep fighting and pushing back. Right. Constantly delivering. But I think I figured out very quickly that I didn't really like working for other people. <laughs> <laughs> so you were doing these sort of like small agency gigs and we spoke about this also before recording that you worked even here in the U.S. for a little bit, just briefly, right? In New York City? Yeah, I always wanted to come to New York. And I don't know, I wanted to be a designer in New York. And uh, I came out, I did some house sitting in um, Brooklyn, and then I got a really cool gig looking after somebody else's apartment in the Lower East Side. And while I was there, I just was trying to find jobs. And it was very difficult as a Londoner trying to get into the New York agencies. What made it difficult? Well, there's the whole issue of your green card and Uh. who was going to be your sponsor. And you had to prove that your service was not able to have been filled by a a United States citizen. Mm. And so agencies, they just, they kind of weren't really interested in having to go through all that rigmarole. And maybe I didn't have the right contacts at the time, I was quite naive in that respect. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's still tough. I have a friend. He's a he's from India. He went to school in Canada. Uh, he was here in Atlanta for a while, but now he lives out near L.A. in California. Mm-hmm. And I remember even when he was looking for jobs, how difficult it was because of those same kinds of issues with companies wouldn't sponsor him 
or he had to be sponsored on like a certain visa. So there were yes. only certain types of jobs that he could look for and not something that could really advance him in his career. It had to be something more lower level. So you kind of were stuck at one point because the job may offer you the paperwork that you need to stay here, but it's not really something you can succeed in or you can grow in. Exactly. And that's where I found myself. So in the end, I had a great time exploring New York, living living the life, doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just hot desking, going to cafes with my laptop, working on mag- – I was actually working for magazines at the time and record labels. From, oh, nice. From London. So it was quite a fun time, you know, coming out of the big corporate chain of – supermarkets, high street retailers mm-hmm. for a while. That was me designing, you know, cute stuff for record labels and magazine spreads for Touch Magazine, which was one of these kind of R&B hip hop magazines in London. Hmm. So that was, it was fun. What year was this, just to kind of put it in context? Oh my goodness. In context, I would say that would have been around, oh, oh gosh, 10 years ago now. Okay. Yeah. All right. So like right around like late 2000, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. All right. I know. Time's gone fast. <laughs> when you look back at your early career experiences, like, I mean, up to what you're doing right now, when you look back at those, what do you feel like those experiences taught you? It's been quite varied. I, I enjoyed being a freelance designer as well as then going full time to be employed designer. And bits that taught me the most were probably the freelance parts because you got to jump around to lots of different types of agencies and work on lots of different projects. And of course, each time you work on another project, you kind of come back and you say, well, actually I can charge more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it it gave me a really good experience across a wide range of types of projects, working with interior designers for a long time, which was great because that was where my original training started. But I also worked with architects, a little bit of work with ad agencies, work with TV companies, mobile phone operators. It's been really random and quite varied. So I think that's the advantage that has given me is that now that I'm working for myself, I do have a very varied type of client base. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like things when they're varied. That's one thing I really enjoyed when I was freelancing, too, that I could sort of bounce around and see how I can use my skills with different, like different types of clients. Like back when I had my studio, I would maybe one month I'm doing something for a cosmetics brand. And then it's pivoting to work for a software company. And then it's pivoting to work for, you know, like a solo entrepreneur that's writing books or something like that. And so you find a way to kind of use your skills in these different ways. What I think and and maybe this is different in other places. Maybe this is unique to Atlanta. But what I found sucked was that once I went out looking for a job, they wanted you to sort of be a specialist instead of being a generalist that could take your skill and apply it to anything. They wanted you to only have worked in this particular type of design, like for years or something, which I don't know. And so, is that when you're applying for jobs in big agencies? These were, well, I don't know if they were all big agencies. Mostly they were software companies or tech companies. I think they just wanted to make sure they had someone that understood, I guess, tech. Like right now I work in a software company. There's a lot of jargon that goes around that I know probably most designers either don't know or don't care about. I'll be honest, I don't care about it most of the time. But (laughs) I know enough to be able to translate it. And know what I have to know for my work, but it wasn't yes. something where like, oh, you have to have had this many years of experience in a SaaS company. Like, eh, I feel like, and this is something that I want to explore kind of more this year in general is that it feels like everything is converging towards tech. Every single profession in some way is converging towards technology. Maybe it's because tech is everywhere. Maybe yes. it's because even in, even in things that I don't think we realize. AI and machine learning are parts of them. So even in the most, you know, seemingly low tech job, like farming or something like that, there's so much technology Mm -hmm. in farming. Like it feels like everything is certainly converging at some point towards tech. So having those singular, you know, kind of work experiences almost, I don't know. I don't know if that really prepares you for 
this sort of new world where everything has to do with tech? Yeah, I don't know. I think I do think about that sometimes because I think like you, I don't really care for the tech speak and the I use tech. I love tech. I love new things and learning new things, but I don't necessarily want to be in tech, if that yeah. makes sense. No, that that totally um, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for me, I would rather I don't know. I think personally for my own creative ambitions, I want to stem more to the art side of things Mm -hmm. to step away from tech because although I, you know, I understand a lot, I can learn, but I don't really want to spend my time having to become a specialist in it. Yeah. And I think so many people do it so much better. So why should I, I don't want to make that my purpose. I want to stick with creative thinking because I don't think that will ever go out. Oh, no. People might be short-sighted in the sense, oh, you need to be specialist in tech, but actually it's a very different skill to think creatively Yeah, and to come up with creative strategy and ideas because tech exists, but it needs ideas to make it functional. Mm-hmm. So even if perhaps, I don't know, maybe the future you might have, I might have to get into tech, but I would hope that I get into it on the ideas side of things. Yeah, I see now, like, you can tell when a solution has been thought up by a group of engineers and there's no tech people in the room because it may work, but it doesn't, like, look good or it's not user-friendly. And and granted, design is a very visual medium, but there's also, you know, UX design. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, more psychological things about exactly you know, how does the user feel about this? Is this word choice proper? Things like that. I know one, this is a project I worked on with a, this is with a client years and years and years ago. And it was very clear that they wanted to have this new content management system for their, for their newsroom. And the software developers there had come up with a solution and they're like, oh, well, it works because it does these technologies and this, this, and this, and all this stuff. But Mm -hmm. the actual user interface was so bad to use. They, I think it was, God, was it .NET Nuke? It might have been .NET Nuke. It was something super obscure that like 0.01% of companies probably use right now. It's not, not WordPress by a stretch. Like it's not, not something that's simple to, to pick up. It's like if you were making an article, you had to make an article in these like blocks. And so you had to think of, like, say you're, you're writing a, a piece and the piece has five paragraphs and two images. So each of those paragraphs is a block and each right. of those images is a block. And so you now have to abstract, oh, well, you just take this paragraph and put it in this block. And then someone's like, well, what if I want to put a picture next to it? They're like, oh, we didn't think of that. Well, why don't you put the picture underneath it? And they're like, I don't want the picture underneath it. I want the picture next to it. Like a, you know, like a pull quote or yeah, something going yeah. outside the margin. And it's like the engineers didn't even think of that. They were no, like, oh, we never, we, yeah, we never considered really- that use case, you know, that sort of thing. So it's important. I think there will always be room for the non tech. Yeah. But in tech. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, at this stage in your career, what is the London design scene like? Like, how do you experience it? I live and work in, in the Shoreditch area, which is like designer central. I've always worked in and around this area, which is how I ended up living up here. It's fast paced. There's design and companies on every corner. It's big business. Some of the worldwide agencies are here. But for me, my design community is perhaps a bit more local, as in my peers, my friends, like, you know, the sort of creative family. And there's a lot of crossover in between our creative endeavors. Since working for myself, I'm beginning to, you know, perhaps work with fellow creatives, but on different things. Mm -hmm. So I have people who are photographers, who are artists, who are fashion designers, writers, TV people, all in my kind of circle Mm. of friends and associates. And I think there's a great crossover. And I think at this moment, especially within the, the black art scene in London, it's a great opportunity of and time because there's been a lot going on and I'm starting to see some of my peers, people that I've known for a long time now actually reaching sort of great heights of success. And I'm reading there about them in publications and seeing friends of mine who are now the artists being featured on packaging for, you know, quite famous products here in the UK. So mm-hmm. 
I think it's a really good time. It's an exciting time. It's like if you've got the uh, you've got the staying power to just keep going and you know reaching out to these connections. I think it's a it's a good time. Yeah, sounds like it's booming. If, if that's the case, I don't know about booming. I think London <laughs> is one of these places where you can boom, but you can also bust real quick. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's opportunity definitely there is definitely opportunity to boom but it's i think probably like anywhere at the moment in our societies it's it's quite hard work but then you get these little nuggets of goodness and growth and prosperity which keep you going to the next now i know here in the states the conversation around diversity and design is it seems like it's ongoing is that the case also in london or i guess in the uk do you find that there's a lot of conversations around having more people of color involved in the design industry as a whole. Uh, yes. Yeah. There's always this conversation. I think for myself as a person of mixed heritage from Brixton, London, I've always been the only person of color and often the only woman in the room in these design agencies that I've worked for. So working now for myself, I'm just working with all black people mm-hmm. and loads of women and loads of people who are just open to be creative. And it's kind of refreshing mm. because in my other in my earlier career, you know, I've always been the only only one in the room so to speak. Yeah. So that discussion is going on. I don't know how much it's going on within these big agencies itself because I stepped out of that. Mm. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of it, what I hear is mostly about employment. It's not necessarily about all over general numbers. Like here in the States, it started from the diversity and technology conversation, which was looking at big tech companies like Facebook, Google, Apple, and seeing how their workforce broke down. And it started to go over into design, but I feel like it's mostly been just about design like design departments at tech companies and not about like these ad agencies or something like that. So, well, we're seeing it a lot in the press. I mean, it's slightly different, but you know, even in the BAFTAs this last week, we've had, there's nobody of color has been nominated for anything. And that's just completely shocking. And then you're thinking, well, who's doing the nominations? Well, Mm -hmm. of course, is there anybody representing there? But then over in the in the literary field, we've just had the first black woman to win a Booker Prize for her book, Girl, Woman, Other, this art, writer called Bernadine Evaristo. Mm-hmm. Her book is fantastic. I recommend everybody go read it. It's, it's really good. You know, there are sometimes things are changing, but I don't know. There's always has to be the first. <laughs> yeah. And then is there any others? And How do you keep it going? I think it's a constant discussion and a constant struggle, so to speak. I think at the moment with the society that I'm in at the moment in London, in Brexit, I just feel I just have to get on and do it myself. And whatever that is, I want to do Mm -hmm. and make the change that I want to see. And I feel like here in the States, it's, it's similar to that. I think it depends on the industry. So like, we just had the Grammys here a few few weeks ago, I think. For people that are listening, we're recording this in early February. So this is Grammys were last week. My whole calendar is a blur, so I apologize. But <laughs> I know the Grammys were recently. Yes. Because unfortunately, it happened the same day that Kobe Bryant passed away. But there was conversation, I think, around some of the like big names in the music industry, Black folks in particular, like... Puff Daddy, some other folks, et cetera, about how the Grammys are sort of not treating black artists well, and they sort of lump us in these other categories and things like that. And I was having a conversation with some people, and the thing that came to me was, why don't they just start their own awards? Yeah. I got pushback from it, I think, for two reasons. One, because the first reason I got pushback was because how come we always have to kind of make the solution? Like, the system doesn't change if we just sort of make an alternative to it, which I don't necessarily agree with. But then the other pushback I got was sort of like the value of what that even means. So a lot of people, you know, in the music industry look to Grammys as some pinnacle of success that you've reached in your career. For some artists, it means you will get paid more. It opens the door to more opportunities, collaborations, et cetera. 
that may not be the same case with a perhaps lesser known award. So it's also about, I guess, the value that the industry gives to these types of honorifics. It's like a whole power structure thing. But I agree with you about we have to do it ourselves because if we keep waiting for the system or keep pushing at the system for things to change, sometimes it changes. Sometimes it does. I mean, it can be slow. It can change in unexpected ways. But then if we're able to do these things ourselves, we sort of become like, you know, the masters of our own fate in that way. We can control and shape the exact message that we want to get out there without having to go through some filter or gatekeeper or something yes. like that. I, th- I think sometimes if you're constantly trying to prove yourself in a structure that has no interest in hearing you, you just get worn out. Mm, yeah. So, and worn down. So I think there's a point at which you just, you know, brush it off and do your own thing. And then I guess, I'm not saying you'd, you'd stop trying. I'm just saying you've got to focus on what means something to you and the passion that you have within yourself yeah. creatively, because the whole system can get on top of you to the point where you lose that creativity and you lose that buzz and the inspiration, which made you want to, you know, enter these roles, competitions yourself in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a kind of like you have to do everything, but for me, the priority <laughs> is you've got to focus on your own passion and your own self and your own community. Yeah. So speaking of knowing friends of yours that have had these sort of big campaigns and and this visibility, you yourself had a pop-up exhibition at the Tate Modern last summer. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, that was so exciting. It was a (laughs) really random opportunity that came my way. And I just said, yeah, cool, I'll do it. And I had no idea what I was going to do. But I was given a, a sort of loose topic to explore. And I ended up exploring the question, where do you come from? Because as a person of mixed heritage from London, I'm always asked, it's the second question, apart from what's your name that people ask you, but where are you from? And you say, well, I'm from London. No, but where are you really from? You say, Mm. well, I'm from Brixton. No, no, no. What's your heritage? You say, well, you know, my mother's Jamaican, my dad's English. Oh, and so you've always got all these layers of questions that come your way. So I thought, especially also within the Brexit drama we've been having, this negative rhetoric about identity, which is going around, I I wanted to explore it. So I did some posters, had this exhibition, was up there for a week. And it was just the most satisfying and exciting experience being at the Tate Modern, which is one of my most favorite places in the whole of London. What was kind of the reception that you got from it? It was great. I had the posters and then I wanted people to come in and ask and answer the question themselves, where are you from? So I had people from all around the world come and make their own versions of my posters, which mm. filled it filled all the walls in this kind of pop-up space. And even this week, I had a message on Facebook from a lady from Peru who came and was part of the exhibition. She was a poet and she just wrote me a message this week saying, hello, I missed the time we had at the Tate Modern. I was just like, this is amazing. I met (laughs) so many people. (laughs) It gave me so much confidence to think that I, you know, I can be an artist. I can take my my design skills, my creativity, and I I deserve also to be here in this space at the Tate. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, it was was really good fun. And I guess, you know, also with taking those skills, you're also now a part-time lecturer at Ravensbourne University. So you're putting it out there in the community as well. Yes, that's right. I wanted to have the opportunity to give back and to be be that inspiration that you see. Like our conversation at the beginning here, when we were at in college or university, we didn't necessarily have people that looked like us to necessarily guide us in that direction. And I just feel that my experience as a Londoner would be valid and useful to anyone at university for whatever their background. And so I've just recently started, I've given one or two lectures and I'm really enjoying the tutorials and getting to know all the kids. Yeah, it's really, it's it's quite exciting. It's very different to my usual day job. <laughs> what are you finding that they teach you? Man, they've got so many ideas. They're teaching me a bit about tech. They've all got the latest computers and every single app and all the applications. I don't necessarily have the latest computer myself. <laughs> <laughs> so what are they teaching me? Definitely 
just different kind of thinking. They're coming from a different place to myself and they're just ready to explore. They're at that point of exploration. And I think for me, it's great to see that because it just opens your eyes again to exploring. Yeah. It's an interesting thing about like lecturing and teaching because you take, especially if you're self-taught or you're entrepreneurial in any way, because you take all these things that you've learned from trial and error and now you're like teaching it to someone else. It's a weird kind of feeling because I don't know, for me, when I did it, I used to kind of feel a bit of imposter syndrome. Like, why am I at this place teaching this sort of thing? Like I taught a, a, a brief class at uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. And I was like, I didn't go to art school. What am I doing here? I'm just a guy <laughs> off the street, like teaching these kids and stuff. But it's amazing how that I feel like they want to hear that, though. They want to hear that kind of real experience because in a way, that's sort of where they're at. Like they're not a known entity or they don't have these right. years of experience yet. So they kind of want to hear the real thing. They don't want to hear the, you know, the packaged speech, I guess, about well, work hard and, and all your dreams will come true. Like, yeah, will they? You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it, they want to hear the sidesteps, the roundabouts, the up and down that you go through, because mm-hmm. I think maybe this generation, they know that it's going to be quite hard to get a job. They're seeing it all the time. There's no such thing as a job for life anymore. And even getting a job is going to be really hard for them. So I think they're aware of that. And so I just think it, I know what you mean about this imposter syndrome, by the way. Because on the first time I had to get up and speak, I was really nervous. And I, the senior lecturer, she did her speech, her lecture, which was good. And when she put up on the board all the clients that she's worked for, I looked at it and thought, oh, we've worked <laughs> for pretty much the same clients over the years. So that's one layer that dropped off of my insecurity because it's like, okay, I've done what you've done. Her whole experience was completely different, though. And then the other lecturer gave her talk and she's I would say much younger than myself and the other lecturer I mean her experience was also completely different and that's when I actually became really comfortable because I was like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be I'm different to these other two Mm -hmm. I don't need to be what they are who they are or where they've been because I've got my own story and my own journey yeah and uh, all of that imposter syndrome dropped off and I saw the kids looking back at me smiling which meant they must be engaged. So I'm good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good when you reach that point because, I mean, one, it, it's, it instills in you this confidence that you know exactly what it is that you're talking about, what it is you're doing, because it's your experience. You Who knows it better than you do? Your own experience, right? So, of That's course, right. you can speak on that from a position of authority. I think the imposter syndrome does sort of come in when you when you try to do that uh, that comparison to what other people are doing. like It's the worst thing you can do, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because like I've talked to people lately about, and it's mostly just been about podcasting, some stuff about design, but they're always like, wow, you're so confident. And I'm like, I've worked my ass off to get here. So yes, I am confident because I know what I've done <laughs> to get to this point to be able to talk about it with authority. So it's, it's a good feeling once it does, once it does go away. So how do you define success? At this point, I think success at this point means being happy. And yeah, success means being happy. If you're working to pay the bills and you can't quite make things stretch, are you happy? I don't know. So you need both the commercial success as well as the creative passion success. Yeah. So for me, being happy means that I'm successful. That means I've got enough money to pay the bills. I can take some holidays, but I'm also creating things that I am proud and happy to work on. Is there anything that you're like obsessed with at the moment? Just music. I'm always obsessed with music. Listen to different music every single day. It's what keeps me designing and keeps me working. (laughs) Who are you listening to? Today, there's a complete complete mix-up of music and tracks. I started off the day listening to, um, okay, don't judge me. It's going to be really random. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Beyonce's Homecoming. It was like the first thing to get me out the house. A bit of Curtis Mayfield. Then I jumped into some Nina Simone. Then I've just seen Queen and Slim. So I listened to the Queen and Slim soundtrack. Mm. 
And then this afternoon, we listened to some Alpha Mist. I would say I'm very obsessed with Alpha Mist. They're a kind of UK ambient soul jazz band. Mm. Really good. I, I listen to them a lot. Wow. So, so there's a very varied playlist for today. That's actually a really good playlist. That's really good. I'm into like, so I don't know, my music taste is, is all over the place. And I don't even know if this is something I've talked about on the show, especially when I was in like college and like my early 20s. I was so, so big into British music. You have no idea. <laughs> Like my favorite band was Jamiroquai. I listened oh, yeah. to Radio One, like just like on the internet or whatever. So I knew about like producers and artists like Alice Russell and Ben Westbeach and Will Holland. And I mean, I still listen to a lot of that stuff. I think, I think Alice Russell has a new album coming out this year. Knock on wood. I hope she does, but I listen to a lot of stuff from the UK, a lot of music. And I went there. It was the first time I was in London. It was in 2017. It actually was the first week that I started this job. They sent me to oh. London for like the first the first week. I was like, what? And I was so mad. I did not get to like listen to the radio, go to any like bars or anything because it was all work. I didn't have time and I didn't know where the stuff where, you know, where places were and stuff. I was like, oh, man, I missed like the golden opportunity to like really be in the uk music you know kind of scene or whatever but yeah oh man i love it love it love it my i i'm not gonna pull up my music director and everything but i'm a big <laughs> huge like british jazz fan british soul oh all that love it love it love it love it yeah well i'd listen to a lot just and it's what gets me designing and i feel really happy when i'm at my desk i share a really nice little studio in brick lane with two other creatives and I love it. And we play music all day. Nice. Yeah. What's something that perhaps maybe not many people understand about you? Gosh, put me on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things maybe not understand, but they don't maybe realize is, you know, you can very easily put out this persona, especially being like a brand owner, that everything is always going amazingly in Tiki Taboo. But when you're a creative working for yourself, that there are often those times which are like major highs and that's everyone that's what everyone sees. Yeah. So maybe people don't necessarily understand that, you know, I me, this big vibrant person who's very happy to be out socializing, can also be at times a bit of an introvert and can, you know, have those moments of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think now, especially with social media and design, it's like you always have to be putting something out there for people to see so they know that you're still doing it or that you're still, you know, out there making work. So it's hard to kind of, I don't even want to say take a break, but you rarely see the downs. You mostly only just see the ups. Yeah. And I think when you're working for yourself and you're running your own business, you know, I run two businesses at the moment. You're doing it all yourself, so you don't necessarily have anyone to share that burden with in terms mm -hmm. of on a, on a business level. And to the outside, people don't necessarily see that. And I think, well, I think that's just life at times, but maybe that's what people don't see or understand about me as much. Yeah. Where do you think your life would have gone if you weren't working in design? Like, did you have a backup plan or anything? I really enjoyed sociology, mm. studying that at school think if I wasn't in design, I don't know if I would have gone into that kind of social world, but maybe a different type of creativity. If I wasn't a designer, you know, I think stage design would be something that I would love to have explored because it's so conceptual and fantastical and, and random. And I guess London's a, a big theater city, so that would have worked out. That, that could have worked out, yes. <laughs> I do a lot of work with theatres at the moment, and I'm really enjoying working with people, helping them visualise their, their creative concepts. Yeah. What do you want your legacy to be? Caroline Hill, creative from Brixton. I don't know. I think my legacy would just be to be remembered as somebody who was a creative, who designed and was here maybe did a little something to change things. <laughs>
where do you see yourself like in the next like five years? Like it's, it's 2025. What are you working on or what do you want to be working on? I would like to think by 2025, my businesses are going really well. I'm perhaps, you know, actually running a team, not perhaps I'm running a team. Things are pretty organized and those things are ticking off nicely. But I think personally, I'd like to have explored my artistic side more and be in the process of creating artwork as opposed to design and designing for other people. I think that would be a really nice thing to aim for for the next five years. Mm. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I have a website, which is carolinehill.com. That's Caroline with a Y rather than an I. My other brand, chillcreate.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, Caroline Hill, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really just kind of sharing your journey. I know we didn't include this in the interview, but the connection that you and I both have is from the late John Daniel, who was also on the show. And I know you mentioned him being, you know, a big inspiration to you, a big mentor to you. And I think, you know, with the work that you're doing with, with chill creative, I mean, having an exhibition in the Tate, and then really, I think just living a, a proud creative life. I think that's kind of the dream for all of us. And I know I really feel like that would have been the dream that John would have wanted to see from you. So Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You've been a wonderful host. Big, big thanks to Caroline Hill. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Caroline and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio here in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or on Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, I just want to thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm